what you're trying to do, Aaron. <laughs> I, I say you die. If that's not good news to you, it's because you don't see yourself as a wretch needing to be saved. But when you understand what God did for you, not, not just for the world, but specifically for you, that you were in need of saving, that you were a wretch, that you were unworthy. When, when, when that's your view and then you realize what God did to save you, that, that's when you really understand the depth of his love. And even then, we still don't get it. We still don't get it. But that doesn't mean that it's not good news. Because even when we don't fully understand God's ways, the depths of his love and his mercy, it's still, it's good news for us. And that should make your heart glad. Uh, pleasure and a, a privilege again to, to be uh, before the people of God this morning. I'm always excited uh, when I get to share God's word uh, with you. So uh, why don't we just go ahead and dive into the text. If you would stand with me uh, and open your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 7 beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse, in verse 1. I'm starting to begin to notice a pattern here that they always have the choir sing when I preach. I don't know if that's because they think I'm so Baptist, but I don't mind. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, we're going to do something a little different today, so you're going to have to pay attention. Right, because I feel a little bit in my Baptist bag. And so what we're going to do is we're going to alternate. So I'm going to read the odds. You're going to read the evens. And then we're going to read the last verse together. Amen? Y'all with me? All right. All right. Here we, here we go. Let's, 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 let's go ahead on. The, the word of the Lord reads as thus. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you ha would have gained from me as Corbin, that is given to God. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? And he said, <laughs> and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, 
foolishness altogether. All these things, evil things, come from within, and they defile a person. If I could tag our text today, it would be the distance between heart and lips. The distance between heart and lips. Let us pray. Father, uh, we are an unclean people filled with unclean lips, unworthy to come before your presence. And it's only because of the blood of Christ that we have been given access to God. And your word tells us to come boldly before you, boldly before you in worship, boldly before you in need. And so, Father, today I pray that as we dive into this passage, we would see ourselves as needy people in need of a holy God to rescue us. Help us, O Lord, to see your word today as an encouragement to equip us for life as a challenge to change our heart and minds and help us to be obedient to your word so that we might truly worship you by obeying what you've commanded. So we pray this in the only name that matters, the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last uh, few months, um, there's been a controversy that has swept across the United States. And it was started by uh, a man who many of you now know, uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, who is a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, and if you didn't know him before, I'm sure most of you know him now uh, as we talk about this controversy as it relates to uh, taking a knee for the flag and what that represents or what that means. But in this controversy, people have taken sides, taken stark sides. And I'm not going to, I see y'all nervously looking at me. It's not going to be a political message. Stay with me. But, but inherently what we see in this controversy is a tradition that has been founded by men. And based on this tradition, a group of people don't feel as though the values of this tradition are representing them well. And so the very thing that should speak to the equality of all mankind is not practically being lived out in this country. But what you see is a group where one side wants to hold to the tradition of what's being done while simultaneously ignoring how the tradition doesn't speak to nor has affected the lives of many of the U.S.'s citizens. And we see something very similar in this passage we're about to look at with the scribes and Pharisees as it relates to ritual pureness and holiness before God and what they've done to create an atmosphere and a culture where the very people who need God the most have been marginalized. So that brings me to my first point. Point number one, we defile ourselves when our man-made rules marginalize those in need of God. We defile ourselves when our man-made rules marginalize those in need of God. Look with me at verse one. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. And this is how they responded in verse five. It says, the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, something we have to take note of before we just jump into this text is that oftentimes when we see uh, the Pharisees and the scribes mentioned in the text, we automatically have a negative perception of them, right? And, and I, thank you, Brother Reg. I'm glad that I got one amen with me. That's all right. As a side note, when we look at the text, we never see ourselves as the scribes and Pharisees in the text, right? It's always the Pharisees and the scribes causing a ruckus, but we never see ourselves as them, right? Anyway, I, that, I'll, you can take that home with you. But, but one of the things that we noticed as we listened to some of their observations when the scribes come from Jerusalem and as they ask 
Jesus this question is that these religious leaders were heavily concerned with defilement. Now listen to me, that wasn't a bad thing. Based on Leviticus 11.44, God told the people, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And so the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of that day were concerned with coming to God in a way that honored him and glorified him. They knew that they couldn't just come before the presence of God any old type of way. And so one of the things that they were concerned about was making sure that they obeyed the law by washing themselves ceremonially and cleansing themselves so they didn't come to God with any old type of impurity. See, there's some good that we can take from that because even in the Pharisees, we see something that we should regularly do where sometimes we just come to God any old type of way. Sometimes we're not as concerned with cleansing ourselves and coming before God with a posture of humility, knowing and reverencing how holy he is and how distinct and separate and unworthy we are to be in his presence. Sometimes we don't come to God like that. And see, that's the good that we can take from what the Pharisees and the scribes were concerned about. Now, they got themselves into trouble because they began to add on to God's law. And so what happened was these these ceremonies and these ritual ceremonies were reserved for the priests in a lot of ways. There were sp- specific instances, which we'll talk about, where the Jews or the, the Israelites had to come before God, and, or before they could come before God, they had to ceremonial, ceremonially wash themselves as a ritual. And you've got to understand why this is so important in this culture, because to be unclean meant separation. Yeah. To be unclean meant separation, not just separation from God but separation from the community of God's people. See, when you were unclean, they removed you from the rest of God's people and put you outside of the camp. You didn't get to have the privilege of interaction with people. You were isolated and alone and by yourself. There's something very key here that we have to understand about defilement. And it does, it's not just separation from God, it's separation from everything. Separation from everything. And so what they began to do was they took some of the law that the, that the priests had been given based on Exodus chapter 30, where uh, God commends them and, and the line of Aaron and his sons and their generations. And he says, when they come in to the tent of meeting, they need to wash their hands and their feet. When they go out, they need to wash uh, as, as priests in order to come before the presence of God on behalf of the people. They had to be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. Now, the, the elders of that time wanted to extend that not just to the priest, but also to the rest of the people, right? Well-intentioned. And in sight, they had a desire to see God's people always thinking about coming before God ceremonially clean. And so they didn't just want the priests to come before God in a manner of holiness. They wanted every man in his house, even when he's not gathered with the people of God, even when he's not offering sacrifices, whenever they do anything, where they're coming before the presence of God, he wanted them, they wanted them to be clean. And so they put in place a system where the people were now to wash their hands and their feet and do this ceremonial cleansing of themselves whenever they came from the mar- marketplaces and before they went out to eat so that they could remember and keep in mind that they were supposed to be holy before the Lord. Now what began to happen was the Pharisees and scribes began to treat their tradition that they created as law and placed that burden on the people and forgot about what the actual law was. I'll give you an example. Uh, I am, uh, you know, I'm a worst case scenario person when I'm planning. My wife can attest to this. I get on her nerves with it. But whenever I'm planning for something, I'm always thinking worst case scenario, right? Because... If something bad happens, worst case scenario, I won't be disappointed because I've planned for it, right? When you don't plan for worst case scenario and inconveniences take place or things just come up that you didn't account for, now your whole world is wrecked because you didn't account for it. Well, for me, if I'm planning worst case, anything above that, I can rejoice in. It makes sense to me, right? Now... Now, one of the ways that that works itself out is 
with time. I, 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 I am, my biggest pet peeve is timeliness. I know they say that cleanliness is next to godliness, but I'm pretty sure they meant to say timeliness is next to godliness. Uh, and so for me, and I know where it comes from. It comes because, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of five, and so we were late to everything. Like, we were late to church every Sunday. Like, we were late everywhere. We always missed Sunday school. Like, part, like, we never could make it on time to anything. When I look back, I'm like, well, she had five kids. What do you expect? Nobody with five kids on time anywhere. But, you know, so we were late to everything, and for some strange reason, I couldn't be late to school. I couldn't figure it out. But, but so I developed this habit as I got older that, that, that said, you know what, in order to be on time, you got to be 15 minutes early. I'm sorry. I can't just show up somewhere and be ready to go and start doing whatever I'm supposed to. I got to come. I got to get the lay of the land. I kind of got to get myself adjusted and kind of get a view of where things are. And so for me, on time is 15 minutes early, right? Now, this was a, a huge source of contention early in my, me and my wife's marriage, right? And still, sometimes still shows this, this ugly head, right, babe? Amen. Uh, and so... <laughs> And so don't worship too hard now. Come on now. Expose your ball up here. <laughs> and, and, and so, man, so, you know, what, what's crazy is, you know, we'll be getting ready somewhere. And my, my mom, I mean, my, 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 my wife, uh, you know, admittedly, you know, she's, she's not as pressed for time as I am. You know, that's a nice way to say it. Uh, and, and so, you know, oftentimes, because of my rigidity, that's the word, right? Rigidity? Rigidity, rigidity, right? With two Ds, right? Okay. Or, or Ts or TDs, something like that. But anyway, um, because I was so rigid with my time, we'd be getting ready to go somewhere, and I, I'm thinking of all the, all the things that could happen on our way that I have to account for even if they don't happen. So I'm at the door frustrated, pacing. Like, this always happened. Ain't nobody on time. If you would have got... See, that's why you got to plan. You don't never plan. Da -da 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 -da. And then you're going to complain about why we late. I don't even want to hear nothing because you should have planned. Right? And I'm at the door stewing and angry. Mind you, I'm not helping the kids get ready, but I'm at the, I'm at the door stewing and angry because in my mind, I'm like, y'all should have thought about this too, you know? But, but, but what begins to happen is because of this rule of law that I've made, the 15 minutes is the point where you're now in sin because you've alienated time as a factor of priority in your life. When we hit that point, I now press that onto other people as if they have a sin issue. And so now, in order for me to be on time, I've created this system where as long as I'm 15 minutes early, I know I'll always be on time. The Pharisees were doing the same things where they created this system that said, well, as long as I'm doing this, I know I'll be clean. And so now they began to take this tradition, this system that they created, and hold people accountable for this system as if it was God's word when God had never said that. Now, the scribes show up in verse 1. It says that they come from Jerusalem. What's important to know is this isn't the first interaction that Jesus has had with them. Right? A few chapters earlier, the, Jesus has had an interaction with the scribes, and they accused him of, of basically working for Satan. They said, the power that you're using comes from Satan. So we already know with their, like their appearance in this text shows that there's some tension there. there there's some tension that exists already uh, uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, and, and then note, note this, in, in their question in verse 5, look what it says. It says, uh, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? I find it very interesting that the Pharisees, when uh, they began to uh, question the actions of the disciples, did not ask about their conformity to God's word, but asked about their conformity to tradition. Right? And the, the reason that they're there in the first place is because Jesus is insanely popular. I mean, I don't think you really understand how popular Jesus is. I know he's popular among Christian people, but, but back in that day, like, Jesus was like a, like a rock star. I mean, think of the most famous person that you could think of and just, like, walking past them down the street. You would probably stop, try to get a, get a quick selfie with them, get their autograph or something like that. Like, and so Jesus' popularity was so intense that the religious leaders felt the need 
to engage him and see what he was teaching and doing because they knew that as long as Jesus' popularity continued to rise, he was turning the hearts of the people from them to him. Look, look at what it says at the end of chapter 6 in verse 53. Now, when they had crossed over, Jesus and his disciples, they came uh, to the land at Gennesaret. Uh, mind you, right before this, Jesus had fed the 5,000, walked on water, and they moored to the shores. Verse 54, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. So he's so well known that it's not like he can just slip in and out of the store. Right? This, this is the type of celebrity that just can't leave their house and not be seen, right? Jesus is immediately recognized and ran, uh, and then it says, uh, the people immediately recognized him, and then they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So not only did people recognize him, but they knew who this Jesus was and what he was doing to the point that they immediately thought about all of their friends and family members who were sick and in need of God and in need of healing, and they went and got them and brought them back to wherever Jesus was, right? That's, in, that's incredible. Now, listen to what it says in verse 56. It says, and wherever he came, in villages, cities, countrysides, they laid the sick in the where? In the marketplaces. And implored him that they might what? That they might touch him even the fringe of his garment. And as many as what? Touched him were made well. Now there's something beautiful here that connects the end of Mark chapter six to, be the, to the beginning of Mark chapter seven. And we see this theme of touching rear its head, right? And so uh, there's, this, there's this idea where you see Jesus in the marketplaces being touched and touching those who would have been considered unclean. So in this encounter with Jesus in the marketplaces, touching as seen as restoration. In the beginning of Mark chapter 7, we see the, the leaders coming and talking about touching, and they're distancing themselves from touching, and it's considered defilement. Are you with me? Listen to what one of the commentators says. It says, thus, in contrast to the scribes who see the marketplace as a source of impurity from which they must outwardly wash their hands, even though they inwardly love the honored greetings they receive, Mark's Jesus, having cleansed lepers, forgiven sins, restored the impure woman, raised the unclean corpse, and cast out unclean spirits, not only sees no threat, but also recognizes an opportunity to extend purity to others. So you have one group that is distancing themselves from touching for fear of contamination, and you have Jesus engaging in the unclean to bring purity. I don't know if you're with me. One of my fears for the church is that we've set up ourselves so much to be distanced from the unclean. And it leaves us in a position where we can never minister to the brokenness of people because we're so worried about being contaminated from the outside. Can, can I be real for a minute? Are you sure? Let me, let me talk about Epiphany Fellowship for a second, if I can. There are many of us who enjoy the idea of urban ministry and being an inner city church that have never sacrificed actually doing urban ministry in an inner city church. I took my, my youth team out last Friday uh, and we walked around the neighborhood. Uh, and I remember we were leaving. There was a, a group of people who were standing outside. Uh, it was about 7 o'clock, and we're getting ready to leave. And they're like, man, you going out in the dark? You, like, you going out and you going to walk around in the dark? And I, I, I knew what they meant. You know, it's, it, you can't, I mean, you, you can't just walk around just anywhere. I mean, we, 
We are, we are in the hood, so you just can't walk around uh, anywhere. Um, but man, as, as we began to walk around and talk to people, and we didn't share the gospel much, we just talked to people and introduced ourselves and let them know we were here and what we were doing with the youth. And if you know Philly people, you know you can't just roll up on anybody. They're not just welcoming. <laughs> right? Like we got a guard up. You know what I'm saying? And so watching my team be able to push through the barrier and continue just to talk to people and then to receive uh, like an invite from the people and an encouragement saying, man, we're excited that you guys are here, what you're doing. But it was like engaging two different people once we continue to engage them and walk through the barrier, right? And so we get back and we're, we're, debrief, we're debriefing. And one of the things that came up was this. It's impossible for you to talk about a love that you have for this community or any community and this neighborhood that's divorced from a love for actual people. What that means is, it'd be tough to argue that you have a love for this community if you don't know anybody in it. It's not enough to just drive in on a Sunday and drive out, or drive into a small group and drive out and have a car view of a neighborhood and just insert yourself into the love that the church in general has for the community and not you yourself have love for any individuals that you know and their situations. And so, fam, this is, this is what we have to be careful of. We have to be careful of being content with just setting up and being in a community where, where we don't have to, we, we can hide. We can hide in epiphany. We can hide uh, and say that we're doing ministry because everybody else is doing ministry and we're part of a church that's doing it, right? It's easy to hide. And here, the Pharisees are showing that they're hiding. They're hiding behind religion. They're hiding because they like to go into the marketplace and receive praise for how they're living and how they're connecting to God, but haven't done anything to change the lives of the people. This is what we have to be careful of. Look, look with me at verse three uh, and, and four. Uh, for the Pharisees, so the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees come and uh, they, they observe that the disciples are, are um, eating with defiled hands, hands that are unwise. This, just some background information so you, you can see the importance of why this is such a concern uh, for them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions uh, that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Just as a side note, uh, uh, whenever you see an author, uh, for instance, like Mark here, where he has to explain what hand washing is, then you know that he's not talking to a Jewish audience, right? So you know that he's writing to Gentiles because if he was writing to a Jewish audience, he wouldn't need to explain what hand washing was because they already would have known, okay? Just, just, an, just an aside there. But in terms of hand washing, hand washing uh, from the elder's interpretation of the law was so serious that to slight hand washing or to ignore it was a crime worthy of death. This is how seriously they took ceremonial Ceremonial cleanness. <laughs> One who neglected washing, hand washing, after eating was as bad as a murderer. Whatever the status and nature of hand washing practice at the time, the only scriptural requirement for this kind of ritual purity concerned the priests in their offering uh, to sacrifices, uh, an Israelite having a discharge, or the elders after a special sacrifice of a heifer. And so the Pharisees were so concerned about external contamination that they observed traditional rituals to rid themselves of that uncleanness. Now here's what Jesus' concern was. Jesus' concern was that their excessive concern for ritual purity, while they completely disregarded the work of God that was being done through him. Can you, can you imagine this? Seeing Jesus... Heal the sick and the lame. Like a, a man who's never walked in his life being raised up and being able to walk. 
Somebody being born blind, only seeing darkness, having their eyes open and seeing the beauty of color. Someone who is demon-possessed, having that demon and that spirit removed from their... Can you imagine, like, witnessing this? The, the religious leaders were witnessing all that God was doing through Jesus, feeding a 5,000, walking on water. All of this they're witnessing, and, and they're concerned about the fact that he's not ceremonially clean. They're, they're so concerned that they won't, that they're not, you know, respecting God and their holiness that they don't even see what God is doing through Jesus in the lives of actual people. Look at Jesus' response in verse 6, which brings us to our second point. We defile ourselves when our man-made rules take the place of God's word. We defile ourselves when our man-made rules take the place of God's word. Look, look at how Jesus responds. Now, typically Jesus responds by asking questions or just kind of, you know, respond with a, a short statement or, or even giving a, a warning. Uh, but here, uh, one of the first times in Mark uh, is, is, is accounted that Jesus gives a scathing rejection and denunciation of the religious leaders. Look what he says. He says, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites? That word meaning actors, right? The, now, they were hypocrites for two primary reasons. They, they were hypocrites because their actions were merely external and did not come from their hearts, which were far from God. But they were also hypocrites because their teachings were not from God, but reflected the tradition of man, right? When Jesus uses this word hypocrites, he also referred to them as whitewashed tombs. Now, I don't know if you've been to a cemetery lately, but, but some of these headstones and carvings are some of the most beautiful edifices that I've ever seen. The craftsmanship of, of having to cut marble and design it and shape it is like stunning. Like you can walk around and just see how beautiful and how clean it is and then you realize that there's nothing inside of it but death. A, a body that's rotted away, that stinks, like a stench you've ne you can't imagine. And so this is what he's saying to them. He said, he said man, y'all are some hypocrites. I know you're concerned about what you look like on the outside, but on the inside, there is nothing good there. And then he goes on and quotes Isaiah 29, 13, and he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, doc, doctrines the commandments of men. The fundamental issue that Yahweh had with the people uh, that relates to the Pharisees as Jesus quotes it is their refusal or Yahweh's refusal to accept worship when the worshipers themselves are actively disregarding him. Yeah. What, what does that mean? That means God doesn't need your worship. I know sometimes we get in here, we get excited, especially at Epiphany, because we got good worship here. We got good worship here. So we like to come and raise our hands and, and sing and cry. You know, when you're doing your housework on Saturday morning, you throw Fred Hammonds on and you singing and crying and, and all that stuff. L li listen to me. Like, your worship is not good enough on its own. And nor do you set the terms of whether or not your worship is acceptable to God. God does. He says, any worship done with a heart that's far from me is not worthy of my acceptance. I I'll refuse anything that you think you have to offer if your heart is not with me. See, true worship is rooted in obedience. That's why he tells Saul, he said, I don't want your sacrifices. He says, I want your obedience. He said, see, the Bible doesn't tell us that God loves us if we worship him. He says that we, like, like we love him when we keep our commandments, when we keep his commandments. There, there's, a, there's a key understanding there. If 
Your worship isn't tied to your obedience. Then it'll never make it to the presence of God. Look at, look at verses 10 and 11 uh, with me. Uh, or I'll, I'll read 8 and 9. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Let, let me just make a point here. In verse 13, he says, uh, thus making void the word of God by your tradition. We can see what Jesus' concern is here. He repeats it three times in this section. He says that he, my concern is that you've now established a tradition and you've rejected God word, God's word in order to obey your tradition, right? Look with me at verse, verses 10 and 11. It says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells uh, his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, uh, then you will no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. What's interesting about these two verses is when I first read them, it reminded me of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And it reminded me of his Sermon on the Mount in this way. He would say, uh, and you know, and the Bible says, but I say, or not the Bible says, but like, like you, this is what you say, this is what I say, right? As he's interpreting the law, right? And here he says, he says, this is what I say, but this is what you say, right? And it's almost flipped around in a sense. And, and, and it was interesting to note that this is what Jesus was getting at. When Jesus interprets the law, we get heart transformation. When man interprets the law, we get more rules. You see the difference there? One is concerned with external behavioral change. And one is concerned with internal heart transformation. Right? Now, Jesus goes on and begins to give them an, a demonstration or illustration from their own traditions of how they've begun to reject God's word so that they can be, uh, obey what they've begun to do. Uh, and he says, you know, he talks about honoring your father and mother uh, and not reviling them. And uh, part of honoring father and mother is to care for them both financially and personally in their old age and disregarding doing that was punishable by death. So this was a big deal. It was a big deal to take care of your parents, personally and financially, once they got older, right? That was a command given by God to do, and it was punishable by death. This is what they did, though. When they interpreted this, this is what they came up with. Listen to this. It says, Jewish tradition allowed that funds originally dedicated to the care of parents could be declared Corbin or dedicated to God, meaning that the person would no longer be required to do anything for their father or mother. And these funds, these funds could now be given to the temple if so desired. So what would happen is they created this interpretation of the law that said, well, let's do this. Instead of caring for your parents in their old age, let's just say that if you make a vow to God, and say that that money belongs to God, then God takes precedent and you no longer have to take care of your parents. Because what are they gonna say? Are they gonna say you're not taking care of me? That money belongs to God. So now to say that that money belongs to you is to go against God. Now the parents are in sin. So they began to create this warped system where they relegated, they, they rejected their responsibility of taking care of their parents and the financial responsibility that came with it by saying that that money belonged to God, but then the kicker is that they didn't even have to give it to the temple if they didn't want to. Wow. All they had to do was vow it to God. Wow. And so, so the Pharisees, in essence, in essence, created a faulty interpretation of the law to line their pockets with their own money. Look, look with me at verse uh, 14, which brings us to our third and, and final point. We defile ourselves when our man-made rules drive us further from God into the waiting arms of sin. 
We defile ourselves when our man-made rules drive us further from God into the waiting arms of sin. It says that uh, after he had finished talking with the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they don't engage in conversation anymore from this point on in, in this passage. And uh, the people that were around him, he gathered them together and he says, hear me all of you and understand this. Verse 15, there is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Jesus was trying to get them to understand that the problem of defilement in and of itself was a heart issue that was much deeper and significantly more serious than simply washing your hands. That's why Jeremiah tells us that, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. It says, who, who can know it? See, the trouble is that we have such a heart problem, obviously like the Pharisees did, that they thought that they were obeying God and they were far from him. Their hearts had so deceived them that they really thought they were doing the work of God and they were in actual opposition to him. That's, that's how serious our heart problem is. And Jesus is saying here, he's saying, you don't just get rid of a heart issue like that with some ceremonial cleansing. You can't wash your hands enough from whatever it is that you think is going to contaminate you. There's nothing outside of you that can contaminate you like what's already inside of you that can contaminate you. That's what he's trying to get them to understand is that whatever, what's inside of you is way worse than anything that could ever touch you on the outside. That's what he's trying to get them to understand. See, they, they thought that, they, that there was nothing wrong with them. That's why they could say that the only way that I can be made impure is by from, from something external from me because they thought that there was nothing wrong with them. That's what people do when they don't think anything is wrong with them. They, they, they keep themselves distanced from everything else that might have a negative impact on them because then they can blame the thing that had a negative impact on them and not themselves. Just, just a side note, I, I love this. The disciples, you know, they enter the house, they left the people, so it's just Jesus and the disciples now. And it says that his disciples asked him about this parable. And Jesus said, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Now, what I love about, uh, about this, these verses and also verses like these as we read through the narratives of the Gospels is we see Jesus' patience with the disciples even amidst their lack of understanding. I mean, that's so, that's so significant that you can be in a place where you have Jesus literally teaching you, like you are in the presence of God, walking with him, watching him do miracles, and listening to him teach, and you fully still don't understand what he's saying, and he's patient enough to not move you out of his presence. It shows us how patient God is with us in our process of understanding his word and how it applies to our life. Oh, y'all not with me. That's all right. Maybe y'all always understand God's word. That's okay. <laughs> look, look with me at verse, at verse 20. It says this, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Again, he repeats that, that refrain of, of what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What, what comes from your heart is what defiles you. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Out of the heart come sexual immorality. Out of the heart come theft and murder and adultery. Out of the heart come coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality. Out of the heart come envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, here we have this conversation of what's been argued in psychology from, uh, for, for, I mean, for a long time now. It's that argument of nature versus nurture. That nature or nurture argument. Is, is, 
is what's wrong with us inherently our fault? Or is what's wrong with us something that happened to us externally? How we've been shaped by our environment. Here Jesus is making it very clear that at a core level, everything that's wrong with you has to do with you. At its base level, there is absolutely nothing when it comes to God holding you accountable for your sin. When you stand before the judgment throne of God, you can't talk about how your environment shaped you. You can't talk about what the, the life experiences that you had that caused you to be the way you are. Now, is that true? Absolutely. There are things that happen in our lives that shape us both negatively and positively and often create deficits in our spirit that have us operate in a certain way. But Jesus is saying here, at a core level, when it comes time to stand before me, I'm going to ask you about you and not about anything else that you think impacted you. What he's saying is when, when, when it's time to blame someone for your sin, the buck stops with you. That, that's, that's, what he, he, that's what he wants us to know. He's, he's letting us know, man, listen, life has its challenges. But the minute we begin to use everything else as an excuse for our sin, we're in trouble. We're, we're in trouble. And the beautiful thing about this passage is Jesus here is telling the people, and he's trying to show them that because of the wickedness that's in their heart, because of the, the Bible calls it evil things. In verse 20, it says all of these evil things. So when you act in a fool, that's an evil thing, right? I know it's not in this list, but it says disobedience is like witchcraft, which is like idolatry, which is like an evil thing. He's trying to show them. He's saying, listen, as it relates to this issue of defilement, there's no defilement like your human heart. And if that's the case, then there's nothing you can do to cleanse yourself. And if there's nothing you can do to cleanse yourself, then you have to depend on me. That's the point of this passage. That's the point of this passage. Jesus here is saying that you are so filthy and so dirty and so unworthy and so undeserving that it takes the spotless lamb of God to shed his perfect blood, to come and step down into your mess and grab you from the dirt and the mire. See, all of us are those in the marketplace who defile those who are holy. But since there are none who are holy, we're all in the marketplace together, defiled not because of some external uncleanness, but because of the filthiness in our hearts. And it takes the perfect holiness of God to meet us in the marketplace, to be touched by us, and to touch us, because it says in his word, if we could just get the hem of his garment, we don't even have to touch his physical body. All we've got to do by faith is grab the hem of his garment and we'll be made clean. That's what it says in verse 56. It's a, verse 56 of chapter 6, it says, and as many as touched it, it didn't even say touch him. It said as many as touched it, just what he was wearing. What, what, what Jesus was wearing was enough for us to be cleansed by his power because there was a faith and a belief that we could not make ourselves clean, clean for God. We needed somebody else to do it. That's my prayer for us today. Is that we would stop functioning as, as these Christians who look at ourselves as, as though we're already made pure. As if there's nothing wrong with us. I don't know if, you, if you've noticed, but even since you've trusted Christ, you're still a sinner. Yeah. And we have, this, we have this foolish idea that the minute we became Christians, we now can separate ourselves from everybody out there that's going to make us sin. When most of the times, we in the church are sinning worse. So that, that's, that's my prayer today. Is that as we come before God, 
as we seek to worship God with clean hands and pure hearts, that we would do so fully dependent upon him with hearts of humility, knowing that our worship, our worship, our worship is deeply connected, solely connected to our obedience to live out his commands. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, Father, we are in desperate need of you. Even today, we stand before you, all of us broken, broken people, needy people. None of us have it together. None of us have enough money in our bank account to earn the right to be in your presence. None of us can sing well enough to earn the right to be in your presence. None of us have obeyed your commands well enough to be in your presence, and it's only because we have a king who humbled himself, who came in the flesh and took on an additional nature. And your, Bible, your word says that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that by the perfection of his blood, those who would believe upon his name can be made clean. And now, because of that, we have access to God. We have access to come before his throne of grace and receive mercy. God, we pray for your mercy because we're in desperate need of it. We pray that our lives will be changed and transformed each and every day by your word so that we, our way can be made pure, Psalm 119 says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Help us to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against it. This we pray in Jesus' name.